Hey, photographers, welcome to the Boca Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Holritz, and really I'm just here to help you build a sustainable photography business. That certainly means helping you improve your photographic skills and enabling you to become a stronger business owner, but it also means helping you work more efficiently so you don't get burnt out in the long run. We are sponsored by PhotographersEdit.com, custom photo editing for the professional photographer, and Milu.com, that's M-I-I-L-U.com, the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing. All right, let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Boca Podcast and uh, a brand new guest with me today, Emily Steinman. It, actually, Emily, it's funny. We were chatting before I hit the record button, and I didn't actually get confirmation about the pronunciation of your last name. Did I do okay? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, okay. It's actually, my ma- my married name is much easier than my maiden name. Maiden name was Boobles, so everybody called me Bubbles. But it fits with my personality, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is actually a great segue, though, to my first question. Um, I learned something about Emily getting ready for this podcast interview today, which is quite unique. And it's actually something that we share in common, which is that we spent part of our childhood in Japan. And and what kind of reminded me of this question when, you, when you're talking about your last name is I can only imagine how the Japanese people pronounced <laughs> your last name with their accent. What did it sound like? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so... Emily, regardless of how you spell it in English, you know, is M-E-D. Yeah. That's Japanese pronunciation of it. But yep. Bubaltz, which is a Germanic last name. It's not super common. But for them, they said Bubaltzu. Yep. Which, you know, it's it's a little different. It doesn't make sense. What is yours, Nathan? How how would they say yours? So my, yeah, my last name is Holritz. They would say Holritzu, which yep. um, is actually a word. It's actually a... a a word in the Japanese dictionary that means, and I think it's pronounced horitsu, but it it's mm-hmm. refers to the law. Um, yes. And yes. so that uh, there may have been a little bit of confusion there too, but that my, <laughs> my first name, Nathan, they would pronounce Nason, uh, which was, I guess, relatively easy enough. But yeah, the, the, the endless stories, I spent about 10, let's see, I guess about 10 years or so of my life in Japan. The, oh the, the stories are endless about, um, you know, pronunciation and it goes both <laughs> ways actually. So, you know, the, the, uh, American people that we were living around or nearby were friends with there in Japan, you know, the, the funny things that they would do pronouncing, trying to pronounce Japanese words or, or use the correct mm-hmm. vocabulary in Japanese. And then the flip side, of course, uh, the Japanese people there who I, to me feel like second family almost, um, yeah. it, hearing the way that they were pronouncing sometimes is so funny, but the amount, the percentage of English use in, in just daily life now in Japan is mind-boggling to me, really. I mean, I would guess five, six, seven, eight percent on a daily basis at minimum, even in like newscasts where you would expect formality and, you know, all Japanese. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of borrowed words, I think, in most languages. You probably don't think about it in English as much, but we do the same thing hmm. where we're taking... Um, I, I don't know. I'm just thinking tikka masala. Like, so this particular dish, I'm like, I love my curries, but they have, this is technically not a native English word, but it's like the national dish of Great Britain, I think. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up, but, but really we all borrow each other's words. And I think that's an amazing thing about communication. And I'm a communications nerd. So we could, we could talk about this all day. It's I'm it's sure we favorite. could. And, and I was actually already <laughs> noticing, I mean, even just your pronunciation of a couple of words there, it, 
with a Japanese accent uh, is quite impressive. <laughs> I, I don't hear that from a lot of American people, even those who have spent some time there oh, in Japan. Yeah. Did you learn to speak it fluently while you were there? Yes, I did. So actually, I didn't start speaking Japanese when I first got there. I started learning Japanese when I was in, I believe, first grade. Um, so I was born and raised in Northeast Wisconsin, kind of itty bitty little area. I'm there right now. We've traveled around and ended up right back in the same spot that we started in. But long story short, we had a K through 12 Japanese program, starting with my class, my graduating class when we were in first grade. So we started Japanese multiple days a week, all the way through graduation. And then I continued it through college. And of course, being the (laughs) linguist I am, I had to pick up a couple extra languages along the way just for fun. (laughs) So, you know, there's that. So I'm a really intentional language speaker. I try really, really hard to understand the pronunciations, knowing that certain words don't carry the same meaning if you say it a different way. Like, I think peach and fish, like to fish in Spanish, they look the same on paper, but Mm. they're different. So, you know, for anybody who's a Spanish speaker... You probably know what I'm talking about, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna botch it there. But in in terms of Japanese, yeah, it's I've been learning it for pretty much my entire life. And did you spend all of high school in Japan? And and what was kind of the the purpose for the the time spent there? Sure. No. So I actually, um, the first time I went to Japan was between eighth and ninth grade, just for two weeks, and that was to visit our sister city and kind of tour around. And that was with my with my class, it was a class trip. So instead of doing that traditional, like, oh, we're just going to go to DC, New York, or we're going to go to wherever. um, My group of friends, we all, with our teachers and chaperones, we all went to Japan. (laughs) And it was amazing trip. And it was life changing. And I ended up signing up or rather starting the very, very long application process with Rotary International to do their youth exchange program during my junior year. So I was there for a full year. Wow. And then, of course, I mean, I've been there five times now, but I spent one full year there in high school. Wow. Okay. Well, yes. I, it, it's fun to, and thanks for everybody listening in, just for kind of giving us a chance to kind of geek out a little bit over Japanese, our experience in Japan and Japanese culture. Uh, if anybody listening in has not been to Japan before, I would highly encourage going and giving it a shot. And, you know, one of the Absolutely. cool things about about going to Japan to our earlier conversation is that English is such a commonly spoken uh, language there. I mean, it, kids begin to learn it in, I think, junior high school in many cases, and then on up through high school. And, and it's just so commonplace that getting around uh, with a few English words isn't overly difficult there in, mm-hmm. in the country, especially if you're going to bigger cities. So, and, and, you know, check out yeah. Tokyo if you get a chance to go. But then I spent most of my time in Japan down South, kind of out in the country in the rice paddies oh, okay. and near a volcano. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if for those, those of you listening in, if you get a chance to go visit, make sure you get out in the country too. The culture is just absolutely incredible. The food's amazing. Uh, the people mm-hmm. are extremely kind and um, yeah, I just, I, I cannot recommend it enough. So we'll leave that alone for now. Thanks for indulging me a little bit, Emily. But <laughs> oh, my, oh my gosh, there's just so many stories that we could talk about. It's, it's so much fun. And yes, you can definitely get around a lot of, a lot of signs are in Japanese and English sure. and it makes just, it makes life so much easier there. But yeah, you could definitely find things that you would want to eat. And they have the, honestly, the best food in the entire world, I think because of their attention to detail. So oh, yeah. It's super good, super healthy. I mean, they, they, a lot of 
Of course, you, you see the Western influence with, I mean, just to put it simply, mm-hmm. a lot of junk food that comes from Western culture that sure. made its way in a number of years ago. But <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the quality of the food and, and the cleanliness of the food, if you will, like as in, like when, when I think about eating healthy, a lot of times I'll say I like to eat clean as in a minimal mm-hmm. junk maximizing the nutritional content of the food that I'm eating. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what you get with traditional Japanese food. It's just absolutely beautiful. So uh, yeah, oh you're right. Gosh. We could spend endless amounts of time. We should have done like <laughs> half the, the episode in Japanese or something. Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. Um, nostalgic, very nostalgic, nostalgic yeah. kind of conversation and feeling here. hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, let's jump into the business side of things. And, and actually, this is a bit of an unusual podcast episode because in the <laughs> 450 episodes or so that I've recorded, we've not had a lot of, of non-photographers on the show. So Emily, you're mm-hmm. you're a standout and I, I appreciate always. you <laughs> yeah, making a t- making the opportunity or excuse me, making the time and giving us the opportunity to, to come on the show. But um, you are, well, you know what? This is just a, a great setup for my question. First question, which has to do with brand position. So what is the brand pre- position or value proposition of your business in your marketplace? Yeah. So I am the owner of Buoyant Marketing or just Buoyant, I guess you could say either way is fine. Um, And we're the only brand agency for photographers and wedding professionals that provides both website copywriting, brand design, and web design with conversion in mind. Interesting. Okay. So you said- I mean, it's it's a big trifecta. It it is. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty big statement too, because I know there are other companies- that offer at least one or two of those services. You're saying you're mm-hmm. the, the only company that, that kind of does all three. I do all three. And there's a really, really good reason why. And I think I'll go into that just a really quick snippet. But I've I've started out more as a conversion copywriter. Okay. And I did design back when I was a nerdy teenager, maybe preteen. I got to think back a little bit here. But it's been, you know, a couple decades basically of learning HTML and CSS and not hanging out with friends, but now I'm, <laughs> now it's cool. I got rising tides. So I've got a lot of friends now, but you know, when I was younger, I did a lot of design. So professionally, I started as a copywriter. And when I would hand over my copy to a designer to then carry on the brand mission, right? It feels like a valiant mission to me. It would get often lost in translation. <laughs> and now I'm starting to think I should probably write a blog post on this. Lost in translation is such a good segue to our previous conversation. Also one of my favorite movies, by the way. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. So I think what would happen is I would do the copy and a huge amount of the brand discovery, understanding the voice of customer, the value propositions, all of this really, really good digging work. Really, I'm excavating their entire brand itself. And then the design aspect would come in and here are logos and patterns and icons and all of this beautiful stuff and, you know, fonts and everything, colors, and then you get web design. And when you work with three different groups of people or sometimes just two different groups of people, that can totally get lost. And then your brand is not as powerful as it could be if you were working with one core team that Hmm. knows exactly what's going on the whole way through. Interesting. So. I think the power is having your brand taken care of in one big chunk, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so you don't get lost. Yeah, more more cohesive mm-hmm. just in general. And yeah, exactly. For everybody listening in, you can check out Emily's website at Buoyant, just like it sounds, marketing.com. And uh, it's also buoyant.marketing on Instagram. We'll link to both mm-hmm. of these in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. 
but let me just jump to the next question because we have a lot to talk about here. Talk to me mm-hmm. about customer experience. What, in your experience as a business owner, has been one of the most important principles behind providing a really great customer experience? Yeah. So I love, love, love giving gifts and gifting is one of my love languages. But I would say that even if you can make the most amazing personalized gifts and all that stuff, that's not really what makes a great customer experience. I feel like my client experience really comes from having outlined workflows and processes and everything like that for my clients so that everybody knows what to expect when. And having that consistency allows my clients to then refer their friends in business to me as well. And then they know they're getting the same exact experience. It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant and it's maybe it's a chain or a franchise and you get the exact same experience locally as you would across the globe. It's that's what I want to try to provide is that that consistency and client hmm. experience. Okay. And workflows, systems, things like that really do help. And contrast that, I guess, with businesses that you have observed that don't follow this approach to doing business. How what does that look like and how is it ultimately de- detrimental to the client experience? Oh gosh, well, I'll just tell you about how my business was before. Okay. Um, to be to be completely honest, I've had HoneyBook for years, but I didn't take that time to actually go through, sit down, outline all my steps, all everything that I needed to do, and actually put in the workflows, put in the emails, put in all of the things that I needed to get done. It was horrible experience for me as a business owner trying mm. to replicate my process every single time I onboarded a new client. And it was hard on them too. I didn't get any referrals. I got like a couple here and there, but not the same level and with the same excitement as I do now. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. Life is just so much smoother hmm. and I can complete tasks faster and, and cleaner. And I can also bring on help if I need to, because I have a whole process I can share with somebody and say, okay, pick up where I left off. <laughs> and I can bring somebody on really quickly if I am in a you know, position where, you know, my hair's on fire busy. So yeah, yeah, life-changing difference. Well, I've mentioned the book, The E-Myth Revisited a number of Mm -hmm. times here on the podcast, which deals with building a scalable business. And a big part of what enables us to do just that is implementing systems. And I know that systems kind of sounds a little nerdy to probably a lot of people listening in, but the reality is having a systematic approach to doing business is not mutually exclusive with you know being an artist, for example. And in fact, the cool thing is right. once we put those systems in place, it actually frees us up to focus on the art that we so love. So uh, I, I think this is a great reminder for everyone listening in that it is important to, to leverage the incredible tools that we have out there that are relatively inexpensive, in some cases free, to enable us to set up systems that will help us work more efficiently and certainly provide a more consistent customer experience. I think that's really, really great. But I want to jump to another question, which is somewhat related, and that is to do with time. Has there (laughs) been a a big idea that has enabled you to make better use of time, to work more efficiently, just to, to create more freedom for yourself as a business owner? Oh my gosh. Okay. So this question was probably, this is probably the one that's going to stump me the most because I'm an Enneagram three. Okay. So I have intense workaholic tendencies Ah. and I'm a recovering perfectionist. So with that in mind, knowing, (laughs) knowing kind of my background here is I have this feeling that like, if I'm in the middle of a project and I'm full steam ahead, I Mm -hmm. don't want to stop, but I have learned two things 
throughout my experience over multiple years of being in business that helps me keep a rhythm, not balance, a rhythm. So the first thing is I accept that there are busy seasons and slow seasons, and it's totally okay to adjust to each. Hmm. It's totally okay. So knowing that there are times where you're going to be busy, 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 kind of like an accountant um, during tax time. Um, And then there's going to be times when you're a little slower. And those slow periods are the best for when you need to build your internal stuff that you're working on. Hmm. And then the next thing that I definitely um, hold strong to is setting boundaries for myself and making sure I turn my computer off on weekends. That's a huge one. It is a big one. Yeah. Especially if, mm-hmm. if you have a tendency, and I know that many of us do as well, to to want to just kind of stick to whatever is going on in the moment. And then next thing we know, it's an hour or two hours later or whatever it might I know. be. <laughs> um, but yeah, creating those boundaries is huge. And and you know what? The first point that you mentioned was really has been an important one for me to realize, which is that that there is there are seasons to the way that, mm-hmm. that we work. Um, I kind of had, I, I was a bit black and white um, with my thought process about, you know, I, I put a system in place and it should always be this and consistently efficient mm-hmm. and always a cutoff at this point. And the reality <laughs> is that sometimes we really just do need to, and in some cases even take advantage of the extra time that we do have to put our heads down and get extra work done. And and that's good. And that will pay off in the long run. I, I think I've exactly. told this story a number of times here on the podcast, but my company, Photographer's Edit, um, one of the primary reasons really that I started the company was to create more freedom and flexibility for myself. And as I was launching the company, I was also reading the four-hour work week. And it was interesting. This is by Tim Ferriss, for anybody who's yep. not familiar. And one of the things that I, I realized was that his thought processes were quite similar to mine. And within the span, probably of about three years, three and a half years or so, I was able to work thanks to a wonderful team as little as about four hours a week, um, owning a company that was you know, ultimately going to serve thousands of photographers. And that was really cool at the time. Uh, but the reality was, had I at that point put you know, maybe 15 hours a week into the company instead of just the four, my company might be in a, an even better place now than it already is. Um, so there's something to be said, certainly for efficiency and taking advantage of freedom and flexibility, but there's also something to be said for taking advantage of the opportunity to put our heads down and get extra work done. And I, I think mm-hmm. your point about that, those seasons of work uh, is a really important yeah. one for everybody to note. Yeah. It's, it's all about understanding what do you need in that season? What, mm. what is going to serve you and your clients the best and going with it, just being flexible and knowing to go with it. And the reason I shut my computer off on weekends is that the vast majority of my clients are wedding professionals and they're working with their cameras. They're doing their planning. They're doing all that stuff on weekends. So I know that there's no reason for me to be emailing back and forth with them. They're busy. They don't need to be bothered. So it's a perfect time for me to work in the opposite spectrum of things where they're, they need to take their time off on the weekends, right? Right. Friends, you need to take some time off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I feel like it, it just makes a ton of sense and setting those boundaries and keeping them is perfect because then I can get out into my gardens and I can till up some land and plant some wildflowers, do some cool stuff. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you actually mentioned earlier hiring an assistant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is great segue to talking about outsourcing and delegation. And um, I know that some people listening and maybe like, well, of course he's talking about outsourcing owns an editing company. Yeah, but the reality is that we can delegate <laughs> not only editing, but also album design and administrative tasks like email, for example, um, accounting work, certainly, and the list goes on. What has your experience been with delegation and have you found benefit in it? 
Oh my gosh. Yes. And I would say that it's, it's one of those things that is really important to learn how to do, even if you're not great at it the first time. Right. I think the first time you hire somebody, you might be like, I think I need an assistant. I think I need, uh, I need to outsource my editing. I need to, and it's okay to not get it right the first time. It's okay to do a trial period hmm. and just get your feet wet with the idea of working with somebody else and sure. letting go of control. Yeah. That's my strongest thing I need to work on is that <laughs> I need to let go of some of the control of yeah. my, the detail oriented stuff. I have a lot of photographers I work with that really do not want to outsource photo editing and I can't understand why, but at the same time, I don't like to outsource other things too, and they don't understand why. So you know, we work together to encourage each other to let go of the things that are not moving the needle forward. Mm. Um, for me, honestly, it was accounting. That was my biggest thing. I might love systems now and I might be singing the praises of all of the systems, but I am not a spreadsheets kind of a person and mm. I'm not a numbers person. It's just not my jam. So one of the first things that I outsourced that was a continuous, we'll probably never, ever give it up is having somebody to help me with the finances. And it makes a huge, huge, huge difference. It's something I've emphasized yeah. endlessly on the podcast at this point. Mm-hmm. If if anybody listening in who's either just getting started in, in business or has been running one for years, if you don't have a great accountant, if you're not putting the numbers into to QuickBooks or something comparable and working with that accountant and or bookkeeper to proactively manage finances, um, you're missing out on an opportunity to build a business that is as successful as possible. Um, and Absolutely. it certainly hurt me for, for quite a while that I, that I didn't do that. So I can't recommend <laughs> it enough. And, and you're right. That, that would be the first recommendation probably when it comes to the delegation that I would recommend mm-hmm. to any business owner is find a great accountant, work with them, find somebody too, that, that you can feel comfortable with. Um, because yes. for me, one of the reasons why <laughs> I did so poorly with finances for so long was because I was afraid of them. Uh, afraid of them as in it <laughs> yeah. stressed me out, right? And, yeah. and so rather than you know, facing that head on and addressing the concerns, the stressors, the fears that I had, um, I, I would just tend to kind of put it off. And needless to say, that just hurts us in all kinds of different ways. So find a great account to work with. That's a great reminder. You don't want to wait till like two days before tax time to start doing your bookkeeping no. for the last year. I can tell you, <laughs> your accountant, they want to keep working with you if you're a good match. So yeah. they will always help you find a way to increase your sales, to cut your costs so that they still have a job with you. So think about it that way. Hmm. And they are the kind of people that will also help you understand what strategy you need to implement to, to build your team. They'll know how to help you hire the next person. And can you afford it? Can you not afford it? How much can you afford? Hmm. They're the ones that are going to help you be able to do that kind of a thing. So highly recommended. I also have recommendations on who to go to. So yes. <laughs> really? Okay. So is, is 100%. This rec- recommendations, are you talking about locally or somebody that is available for business owners kind of nationwide or? What do yeah, you no, that? globally. So I have, I have my personal accountant that I absolutely love. She was recently featured on a major publication and she is so good. So good. She has helped me immensely. Okay. Um, and I can shout her out if that's okay with Please. you. Please, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So Caitlin Magnuson of the Freelance CFO, she is genius, absolutely genius. So cool. If yeah. she has time and availability, 
to contact her, see if she does. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you will, your business will be better because of it. I promise. And we'll put that in the, in the show notes, <laughs> bocapodcast.com for everybody listening in. Make sure you take advantage of all those resources, talking points, et cetera, that we're going to put in the show notes for this episode. Shout out to Haley who produces the show and does that for us. Talk to me, Emily, about uh, a favorite book, business book, self-help book that's made just a big impact in your life. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you were talking about two books that were the E-Myth and then what was the other one you just mentioned? Oh, the four, the uh, four, four hour, hour work week. week. Yeah. Tim I, Ferriss. I, I started that one. I couldn't get through it because I was like, oh, but I, I need to work on my workaholic tendencies first. <laughs> um, so those are the ones that are on my list okay. um, to read. I've got my Audible subscription. It's constantly busy, busy, busy humming. Yeah. Um, but some of the books that I love, I would say Basically anything, blanket statement by Brene Brown. Okay. Mike Michalowicz and Simon Sinek. Um, right now I'm reading Mike Michalowicz's Fix This Next, which just came out this year. And it's really helpful, I would say, because truthfully, he's the author of um, Clockwork and Pumpkin Plan and Profit First and all the all the ones that you probably have heard of before. Oh, okay. Yeah. But his book, Fix This Next really is like the intro book to help you understand which book you could probably read next to fix that particular problem. Interesting. He talks about this business hierarchy of needs and what you need to fix first before you can move to the next level. Like you shouldn't be thinking about legacy until you can actually make a sale, right? So there's some really amazing things in that particular book. And I'm low-key obsessed with it right now. (laughs) (laughs) So good. It's a great business book, even for people who've been in business for a while, because it helps you diagnose where you're at currently Hmm. and what's stopping you from getting to that next stage. So it's not just for beginners. Yeah. Fix this next. Make the vital Mm -hmm. change that will level up your business. Cool. We're Mm -hmm. going to link to that in the show notes too. Super good. Um, that's really interesting. I haven't read that book yet. Okay, cool. Everybody listening in, take advantage of these, (laughs) these resources. And by the way, uh, if, for those of you listening in, you've not seen the the bookshelf, the Boca bookshelf. If you actually go to B-O-K-E-H, bocabookshelf.com, uh, Haley's put together a collection of the most popular books that have been brought up here on the episode. Just go check that out. If you need a resource for books, if you're trying to pick your next book, go check that out. Take advantage of it. And uh, again, we'll put this book in the show notes as well. Let's jump into our, our kind of main topic at hand, though, Emily. And, and this is <laughs> it's a bit of an unusual one, quite interesting. And, and I, yeah. uh, to get your perspective on this will be, I think, wonderful. I really appreciate you making time. But you've dealt with chronic illness for years, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give a little background to that? And, and maybe just kind of start the conversation off with explaining what the biggest challenges are when it comes to dealing with these types of illnesses while simultaneously running a business. Yeah. Okay. So this is a really, really big topic and it's so big. So that I decided to start my own podcast called Becoming Buoyant. Okay. And it's honestly, the podcast is, it's still in its infancy stage and I've only got one season out, but I've basically brought on a bunch of guests to explain like, what what is it that you're going through and what kind of business do you have and how does it all work together? I like to collect these stories and help encourage, empower other entrepreneurs to say, it's totally okay if you've got some sort of health hurdle, you can make it through. And this is definitely a possibility Hmm. of you being able to make a sustainable income, something that is meaningful for your family. So um, just had to put that out there that this is a conversation that's super near and dear to my heart. In terms of what I go through personally, 
I don't think I talk about this a whole ton on my own podcast. So it's really kind of a weird turning the mic around feeling. But um, so I have a condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And what that is, is a hypermobility condition that is based on faulty collagen. I'm not going to get into the technical details, but basically it affects everything in your body that has collagen in it and Hmm. sort of tissues and skin and all the things, Okay, even teeth, eyes, literally everything joints. So because of that, I deal with a lot of really weird symptoms, like everything from migraines to TMJ, like jaw pain and spinal compression and, you know, uh, digestive health things, just weird. So I think the biggest thing that comes up, um, that kind of, I would say is a struggle when it comes to running a business or working a nine to five job or that kind of thing is unpredictability. Truthfully, Hmm. unpredictability is the biggest problem. So the feeling that people have in 2020 of, um, you know, global health crisis, kind of a thing going on, we talk about, we don't know, is it okay to do this? Can I, can I go to the store? Can I do this? I don't know if, is it going to be safe to do that? Mm -hmm. Like this feeling of anxiety of, is it okay to do X, Y, Z activity? Sure. When it comes to somebody with a chronic illness, we've always thought about these things. Is it safe for me to go out when it's cold and flu season? I'm higher risk. So is it safe for me to go out? I care about um, washing my hands and things, but are other people as careful? Well, maybe not. And then there's also the aspect of if you are the kind of person that deals with chronic pain or GI related things, you are very concerned about how long am I going to be going out? How much energy am I going to exert? And what is the social impact of these things as well? Mm. Will people understand if I have to bow out early? There's a lot of things life-wise that we don't really talk about when we have disabilities, chronic illnesses. It's often a thing that people say, shh, we don't talk about the the disability word. Mm. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with the idea of having a disability. It's just how do we work with it, right? Right. Working a nine-to-five doesn't work for me. I can't sit in a chair, stare at my, at my computer without breaks, without changing the lighting, without mm. changing my environment a little bit. Some days are great. Some days are not. Some weeks are amazing. And then you have a weird hiccup. So working for myself has been the number one way of giving myself the accommodations I need without feeling a single ounce of guilt. Well, and you actually, there was a statement and the uh, communication with us prior to the podcast today that, that you made, which really ties into this quite well. It's, it, you said it's possible to be uniquely qualified to grow your business because, not in spite of, your mm-hmm. personal hurdles. Um, it, it sounds like, I mean, you talked about the significance of, of systems earlier, mm-hmm. and I, I would, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing that you realize the significance of systems and consistency and workflow, or at least having systems in place that, that help manage yes. your workflow because, as you put it, your that this chronic illness that you're dealing with creates a certain level of unpredictability, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you have to have structure in place. Absolutely. So I I think there's so much to be said about that. There's this um, there's this little saying or a concept, and I don't want to get too off topic, but there's a saying that if you have structure and systems, you have freedom within it. Mm-hmm. And there's an analogy about kids on a playground. So imagine like a schoolyard, right? Where you have every, all the kids are going out for recess. They're playing on the, on the playground and running around all that fun stuff. 
if they have a fence around the playground, they will expand into that entire capacity of the fence, right? But if they don't have a fence, they stick closer to the school building and their teachers because that's the safety zone. So this is the same way that we can talk about systems and processes and workflows in a really livable, you know, understandable kind of a concept. When you build a structure, you feel safe to grow and be free and be creative within that structure Hmm. to your fullest potential. If you don't have a structure, you don't know what that limit is. So you are constantly feeling like you're spinning your wheels. So when it comes to chronic health, chronic illness and health concerns and things like that, having those structures in place makes me feel like I might be okay to exert some more energy than I typically would want to because I know that there's a system in place and there's a stopgap in case if I overdo it or that kind of a thing. There's a way that things will still keep moving in my business. Did you, were Mm -hmm. systems natural for you or did you kind of learn what it meant to put systems in place through some other source? Oh, okay. So this is a really great question. Really? Systems have always been something I've loved. Even as a kid, I was, I was the kind of person that because my mom was a Six Sigma lean coordinator, (laughs) for those of you who aren't in like manufacturing and really nerdy business stuff, she did efficiency training. Ah. So she trained businesses, lots of businesses, massive corporations on efficiency, productivity, and things like that, saving money, obviously without firing all your people. Um, But I grew up in a household where that was a common topic and she didn't, she didn't put stuff on us, but it was always an interest of mine. So I looked at it like, how can I make something efficient? (laughs) Of course, with color coded everything, Mm because I can't not color code everything. (laughs) How can I do this so that I can give my clients the best results? And when I was a kid, it wasn't about clients getting best results. It was about getting good grades. It was about you know, having more community service hours, that kind of stuff. So that's always been a natural part of me, but I did have a good, you know, 10 years of like a crisis mode in my life in my twenties that I'm just getting over that I lost a lot of my systems. um, Oomph, I guess you could say. So all of that has come back to me more recently and I'm just so overjoyed about it. And the thing, the funny thing about systems is I think is it gives us a sense of control, at least in some instances. Mm-hmm. And, and then in some case, it can, some cases it can just give us maybe a sense of stability when things feel out of control. Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned earlier, actually multiple instances where you mentioned that you are a perfectionist, a recovering perfectionist. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things you said to us before the podcast today is that there is no shame in, in perfection. So uh, I, I think this is uh, maybe obvious to, to many people listening in how the, the struggle with imperfection ties into your physical struggles. And then, of course, being a business owner all simultaneously. I, so talk to us a little bit about this. Where did this drive for perfection come from and how have you learned to kind of step beyond it? Honestly, I think I was born with it. I really do. I think I've always been that kind of a kid. And growing into a professional career, I was working in more of a corporate um, higher education environment. I had a lot of these tendencies just naturally. And it's and it's okay to feel a desire for excellence. Don't get me wrong. I will always pursue excellence forever and ever. But when it comes to perfection, there's a certain point when you realize the job will never end. 
you will never be able to complete a project if you don't get it just right. Hmm. That's where you need to kind of reevaluate your goals and your, your situation. Like, is this healthy? Right. So I've learned the idea of diminishing returns. And we talked a little bit about this prior to um, turning on the record button here, but this concept of diminishing returns is a huge one for me. And I learned it more recently, I would say in the last five years when I was you know, pretty much right after I started my business and was like, whoa, okay, you can't be profitable and a perfectionist Mm. because you'll never, you'll never actually deliver your first product. (laughs) Interesting. So um, you have to understand when your product or your service is good enough. I'm not saying good enough equals bad. You need to know what your good enough is. What is something that is deliverable? What is deliverable quality for you and your business? And what is it that your clients are actually hiring you for? That should all be kind of aligned. And then any work beyond that is now, first of all, wasting your time. I hate to be kind of the, the harsh one here, but I love it. it's kind of wasting your time. Yeah. And the hard part is that your clients won't even notice ouch, that's, that's like a really hard truth. Like I hate to say it because it feels like, oh, this hurts, but they're not going to notice. They're not going to notice that you put 30 extra hours into say editing photos. They're not going to notice. And especially if they're the, the clients that maybe they print some of their photos, but like, they're not going to notice the 300, 1000 photos you just edited. They're not going to notice every single tiny little speck that you took out (laughs) and yeah it's to a certain extent your product has to be deliverable or they're going to see a negative client experience because you're not delivering your images so you have to understand what that good balance is right of what is your version of deliverable and then deliver upon it right you stop stop when you get to that point yeah, and this is something that we've talked about in regards to editing, you know, delivering mm-hmm. finished images. And I've mentioned multiple times, I mean, one of the experiences that I've had that was kind of a aha moment, really, as not only a photographer, but then ultimately an editing company owner, and then trying to understand how photographers think who are apprehensive about the idea of delegating or outsourcing their editing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realized when I went to friends' homes, to, to go visit somebody at their home, you know, I'm seeing snapshots on like the refrigerator, for example. Uh, yeah. They're, they're super imperfect, right? Not processed exactly correctly or cropped just right. They may be a little bit blurry. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing holds true for the images on my refrigerator at home of me and my kids uh, or me and my girlfriend or whoever it is. This this realization that it's not about the image being perfect that makes it so wonderful, Right. Um, really translated for me, and and I'm I, I I have I guess at least attempted um, to communicate that significance to photographers because the reality is even as a photographer and editing company owner, I realized I didn't care about these details, these nuanced details that we as photographers, myself included, by the way, have put so much emphasis and mm-hmm. energy into. When the reality is, ninety eight percent of our clients don't care about those details. So we do have to find a balance. I, I can very much relate, Emily, to your your perfectionist <laughs> tendencies. Uh, yeah. So I, I understand what you're saying. And I think a lot of photographers, at least in some ways, can as well, especially when it comes to something like editing. Yeah. But we do have to find a balance. We have to set our ego aside and the significance that we give to this ideal that we have in mind that we have to deliver and actually create a certain level of awareness about what our clients are actually looking for. 
through mm-hmm. conversation or otherwise, and make sure that we're delivering on that first. And, and that is really most important. I'm so glad that you highlight this. I, I say it because because I work with all these photographers and other um, professionals with amazing photos that they get from photographers, right? I am putting these on their websites and I think I do the same thing and I get it, but please finally just upload your photos so that I can put them onto your website. You don't have to re-edit and re-edit and re-edit. It's not necessary because ultimately you just need to be able to achieve the goal of you know, booking more clients or delivering that gallery or whatever it may be, you have a goal in mind and you need to be able to complete that goal. It doesn't have to be more complicated than you need to make it. The only thing is I totally empathize with the fact that it's your art. It's your baby. I get it. I do. I do. And that's the same. I do the same thing with copywriting. I do the same with design and I could I could stretch out projects for like a whole year and just, you know, maybe like, you know, (laughs) never deliver them if I was like, oh, that's just not quite right. Oh, that's just not quite right. But my clients love it. And that's the thing is you need to get that feedback and that reassurance that they love it and they love you for it. And it was the experience you provided the entire time that was worthwhile, not just that final product. That's such a great reminder. And I really appreciate you bringing that to all of our attention. Um, But I want to jump to my last question. And and there are three ideas that you actually shared with us ahead of time that have enabled you to grow your business, to serve those clients, make an impact in your community. And of course, despite these physical maladies that you've had to deal with, um, will you share those big ideas with our listeners and kind of break down each of them so that they can clearly understand how you've been able to accomplish what you have? Yeah. So one of the first ideas I had was self-compassion. I know it sounds a little bit cheesy and fluffy, but the thing is you have to be okay with making mistakes, taking Mm -hmm. risks and having it completely flop. And then you have to brush it off, get back up again and be kind to yourself. Say Mm -hmm. you can't tell yourself that you're a failure. Say that didn't work, that this thing didn't work at this time in this moment with these people. Yeah. And that's okay. Have a little compassion for yourself and keep moving because your business idea, the things that you love to do, they are worth sharing with the world. You just have to be a little bit kinder to yourself to make sure you keep going. Because the last thing you want to have is that you're the one who stops your business and your dream from moving forward. So that's, that's piece number one. (laughs) Yeah, no. And it's so good. I don't need to add to that. I'm just, Mm -hmm. it's very much resonating with me as you're talking about that, because that's been even in recent weeks, a a struggle for me internally. So um, I I appreciate the reminder. It's such great encouragement. Mm -hmm. We do have to, I I think there's a, you know, there's a balance too. There's a certain amount in our culture of coddling that happens as well. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's okay. It's okay. You're awesome. You rock, you know, all this. Mm -hmm. And, and, simultaneously, then that makes it easier for those who are struggling with something to not actually be willing to put their head down and get to the root of what might be leading to whatever it is that they're struggling with. I think it's there's, there's got to be a good balance in there somewhere. It's going to look different for everybody. But at the end of the day, you're right. We have to mm-hmm. learn how to be able to get up, brush ourselves off and keep going uh, because yeah, success can be on it. the other side of that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. If we don't learn, yeah. then then we won't ultimately be as successful as we could be. Exactly. So there's, I think there's a very big difference between self-compassion and toxic positivity. So I think the big, the big dividing line there is being able to learn from your mistakes after you acknowledge them. Ah. So acknowledge that mistake and move forward. Don't do it again. If that was something that you can obviously avoid and keep going. And 
I mean, I don't know how many of us have had businesses that didn't work out, but we're not less of a human being. We're not less of a business owner just because the first idea didn't work or just because the market conditions weren't right or just because, you know, insert reason here, you know, (laughs) we are still, we are still worthy as business owners to keep pushing forward and pursuing what we want to pursue. So well, Self-compassion I, I, is great. <laughs> I, I think even your dog agreed with that one. So, Oh my gosh, I, I know. Everybody's on Sassy. the same page. <laughs> Take us to the next big idea. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is community support. There is no way you can do this alone. No way. There's just no way. I mean, you can have clients, obviously, but like beyond that, you need to have a community of other entrepreneurs that get it. I don't know how many of us that are listening right now are thinking, gosh, my, my family just doesn't get it. My, my spouse, my partner doesn't get it. My kids don't get it, whatever that might be. And it's true. They don't. Some of them, honestly, they just don't. And that's okay. You don't have to have everybody understand what you're going through, but you do need to have some people understand what you're going through. And I personally have found that in Rising Tide. Um, I think there's a lot of other great communities out there that oh my gosh, they'll just, people pour into each other in a way that is helpful and not just overly positive for no good reason, but really there for you in the good and the bad times and, you know, push you to go farther when you're, when you're holding yourself back. Yeah. And and there's an interesting tendency that we've had in, in our culture in recent years to, I mean, we, we say that we're connected virtually, but it's just not the same thing as actually getting together with a group of people and, and it, seeing somebody, talking to somebody eye to eye, face to face, maybe giving them a hug or vice versa, and, and really connecting with another person or a group of people who, like you said, can actually understand and empathize with you and, and encourage you in a way that um, that is going to make a, a big difference. And I know it's tough right now, obviously, with COVID. We, we don't have the freedom, the flexibility that we normally do to connect with people in person. But I hope, actually, that this makes an impact on people enough that they're willing to, when things or as things continue to get better, that they're willing to step beyond their phone and you know clicking on mm-hmm. Facebook or Instagram and actually go connect with community because it really does make all the difference in the world. Oh, absolutely. I think that the, the in-person meetups, if you're able to, is so worthwhile. I really miss having coffee chats with people in person. It's just so nice to be able to literally look at the same screen at the same time and do, you know, do co-working together or, or just hang out and have coffee and laugh about who knows what, you know, just random life stuff. I think a lot of us are missing that connection, but I do want to put a little side note in that, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the disabled and chronically ill community, they don't have the ability to meet in person the same way that everybody else used to. Sure. So this idea of what we're experiencing now with social distancing and being a lot more cautious and not being able to go to events or conferences or that kind of thing, that's a really hard reality for the everyday chronically ill person. So when we do go back to some semblance of normal and we're able to go back again, I just want to encourage everybody to not forget about those who do have chronic illnesses that maybe aren't able to travel or 
I have to be really concerned and cautious during cold and flu season and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, I, I think that's, <laughs> it's a great reminder, yes. but yeah, I'm, I'm thinking as, as you're talking about that, though, that that is even more reason. I mean, that what you're saying to us and, and the reality of the life that, that you deal with and the physical difficulties that you've had to kind of step beyond, uh, and in some cases, those difficulties that have kept you from being able to meet in person <laughs> – are, these are all the reasons more for those of us who are even somewhat capable of getting out um, mm-hmm. to connect with other people to do just that thing. Because I, I mean, I remember, um, you know, even just in the local photography community, uh, I remember one person in particular, for example, talking about how they didn't want to drive 20 minutes across town because it was too far to, to go and, and meet with a group of people. And, and <laughs> these types of statements were, were relatively commonplace and statements and or actions to go along with said statements. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what it is about people's tendency, photographers' tendency to avoid those in-person connections, you know, with, with what is the worst thing that they have to do, drive a few minutes across town in order to benefit so significantly on so many different levels. That's been very, very mm-hmm. confusing to me. And I realize that we're you know, not all wired the exact same way, but let's let's be willing to step beyond uh, our, our little box that we live in. Uh, and, and certainly, yeah. to, to your point, Emily, appreciate the, the freedom that we do have if, if we don't have those physical issues to deal with, to, to go connect with people. It's just, I can't stress enough how important it is and how big a difference certainly it's made in, in my business um, over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's kind of reflecting and recognizing your own privilege in that you're healthy and can and can drive yeah. 20 minutes to go somewhere without um, any major ramifications. I think that that's such a privilege and such a beautiful thing to have that community in person. And I'm grateful for all of the times I'm able to do that. There are times when it's just not a thing I can do, but I'm so grateful for when I do that I never pass up that opportunity to connect with other people. I will gladly give up an hour at my computer Right now, I'd gladly give up like 300 hours of my computer (laughs) if I could see people in person again. So, you know, keeping that in mind, it's all about creating an inclusive environment and asking what do people need to feel more supported and that they're able to come. So if you see people that aren't able to come for health reasons too, when you do invite them, ask them what will make it easier for them to say yes. And then there's a third idea, and this is something that we've kind of alluded to in our conversation mm-hmm. thus far, but what is that that third principle, that key idea that will help our listeners grow their business more effectively? Yeah. So here is another visual for you. So remember that Friends episode where they're moving the couch and they're talking pivot, pivot, pivot? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the, the biggest key here is having a flexible business plan hmm. and knowing when it's okay to pivot. And when you should push forward, that's, that's going to be hard. And you have to reach into your intuition a little bit, but really knowing that it's okay to adjust when you see something change and you see a demand shift, then pivot and go with it or stop what you're doing, start something new. It's totally fine. I had that experience where I was offering copywriting and people were asking me about brand design and web design. Why aren't you offering that? Why aren't you offering that? And I was like, because that seems like it's a little overwhelming to do all three. Well, here I am where that is probably my biggest aha moment of this works beautifully together. And had I not chosen to be flexible with my business plan, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. So 
being flexible, then you don't get bent out of shape. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yeah, That's something I have to remind myself as well, because it's so easy to kind of get stuck in our lane with blinders on and, and mm-hmm. just kind of forget that there are other ways to go about doing things. And, mm-hmm. and again, for me anyway, I know it's about something in some cases about just setting aside my ego, this, this idea that I, I had it right to begin with to set that aside and realize there are other ways of doing things and, and go with the flow. It really does make a big difference, helps minimize stress and ultimately helps us get where we need to go as business owners more effectively. So um, that, it's a great reminder. I, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and your wisdom, Emily, in this episode. Can you remind our listeners one more time where they can find you online, follow what you're doing online, and, and I guess any other websites uh, related to your brand that they sure. should know about? Yeah, so definitely I have, um, of course, my Instagram. It's at buoyant.marketing. I would have gone with just buoyant marketing, but I stole it from myself and then lost the login. So don't do that, word of the wise. Um, buoyant.marketing is where you can find me on Instagram. Of course, I'm on all the places, so Pinterest and whatnot too. But if you go to my website, if this is okay, I can share a seven-minute website audit checklist sure. with your listeners. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I have buoyantmarketing.com forward slash Boca. If you go there, I will send you my seven-minute website audit checklist. It's super simple, and it helps you immensely with yes-no questions and space for notes to figure out, is your website actually serving your clients and yourself? Because, hint, it should be serving you too while you're sleeping. Um, And then you can figure out if you need to make some changes, all of which can be DIY if you want to, or you can obviously, you know, you can hire a professional too, if that's what you need to outsource, but that's the next thing. Um, And then last, yeah, if you want to check out my podcast, which at some point I'll be recording season two when I have enough bandwidth, it's becomingboyant.com. Perfect. We'll link to all of this in the show notes. Everybody listening in the show notes, you can find them at Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com. Or uh, if you use a podcast app on your phone that lets you see the show notes formatted neatly and correctly. Um, of course, you can check those out there as well. Thanks once again, Emily, for making time for all of us here at the Book of Podcast community. Thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks so much, photographers, for listening to the Boca Podcast. Will you let us know what you thought of the show by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is nathan at bocapodcast.com. We do try to bring this show to you commercial free, so make sure to check out our sponsors, photographersedit.com and milu, M-I-I-L-U.com. Photographer's Edit is custom photo editing for the professional photographer, and Milu is the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing.